We are, um, just for the next couple weeks, uh, doing a mini-series in our book of Romans that we're in. We're calling it Struggle, okay? Struggle. And if you talk to anyone who knows their Bible fairly well and mention the chapter that we're in, in our study of Romans, mention Romans 7, and if they know their Bible pretty well, they'll likely say something like, oh yeah, I can relate to that chapter, because that's where the Apostle Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do, and too often the things I don't want to do are the very things I find myself doing. I really identify with his struggle. I've lived Romans 7, and maybe, maybe that would be your testimony as well. A large portion of this chapter in Romans 7 is, is that very thing. It's Paul describing his own experience of struggle, of frustration. Struggle not with outward circumstances, not with trouble and hardship on the outside, but struggle on the inside, right? Inner conflict, the battle that's taking place on the inside every day with what he calls sinful flesh. It's about the believer's internal struggle with sin. And I don't know about you, but when I remember who Paul was, this great apostle of Jesus Christ, this godly missionary that God used to spread the good news throughout Europe and throughout Asia, this man that, that God used to write a good portion of the New Testament, when I think about the fact that it was Paul who wrote about his struggle, it gives me some comfort about the, the struggle that I experience in my own life. Anybody with me on that? It's like if he struggled, I guess, you know, it makes sense that I might struggle as well. And in Romans chapter 7, we see that this struggle that every Christian faces has a few elements to it, several components to it. And this can get a bit complicated, but I, I think gaining at least a basic understanding about this is going to help us. There are several forces that have partnered up to bring down the people of God and, and to try to defeat us. It's like having being in a boxing match and having multiple opponents who are tag-teaming and trying to take us down. The first is Satan, the devil, right? The sworn enemy of God and the sworn enemy of God's people. Satan certainly is trying to bring down the people of God. He uses anything and everything that he can to defame God and to derail and distract and discourage and defeat God's people. So there's the devil arrayed against us, and then there's this world that we live in, this world system, right, that is set against God and filled with a multitude of enticements that are geared to stir up our fleshly passions and pull us away from single-hearted devotion to God. So there's the devil, there's the world, third, there's the flesh, the flesh, and that's, that's the, just the, the natural weakness that we have just as a result of being human and not being fully redeemed yet. In Romans chapter 7, Paul is going to write this, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. So our own human fleshliness with its innate uh, desires and appetites and cravings also works against us living holy lives. 
And then there's this thing called sin. Sin, this, this thing, this principle that is at work both in the world and in human beings since back in the days of Adam and Eve, right? And in the Bible, sin is distinct from the flesh, although it's not separate from it. Sin is attached to our human flesh in ways that we don't fully comprehend. But it's the sin within that stirs up and distorts those fleshly human appetites that we all have in, in an attempt to make us its slave, the slave of sin. Sin is such a real thing in the Bible that at times the Bible actually personifies it, calls it a, a master, a ruler. So sin is like Stalin, Hitler, Saddam Hussein, that character down in Venezuela right now. Sin is, is an evil tyrant who oppresses all who live under his rule and is always craving for more and more and more power. So the devil, the world, the flesh, sin, that's an impressive array of evil forces, right? All teamed up against humanity, both lost people and saved people, trying to entrap and ensnare and enslave the people of God. Keep them, keep us from our creator and from this life that he offers us. There's another force in this world that that also helps contribute to human enslavement to sin. But this one's different. This one is not evil. This one is good. It actually comes from God, and it's very good for achieving the purposes that God has for it. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the law, the law of God. You see, the Bible tells us that God's law, think, think Ten Commandments, okay? God's law not only defines sin, which it does. The law of God tells us what is right and what is wrong, tells us what God loves and what God hates. The law not only defines sin, but it also provokes sin. We're going to see this twice in Romans chapter 7. It's already been alluded to in Romans chapter 5, and I thought about that, and I tried hard to come up with a, a visual, a picture, an illustration to show how this works, and all my ideas fell short in some way. But I landed on one. You can tell me if you think this helps in understanding. So sin is like a big black bear, okay, that lives inside our bodies, that lives in our flesh. It's strong. It's powerful. It's capable of doing a lot of damage, wreaking a lot of havoc. And as is true with bears, this bear can lie dormant, right? or be in hibernation, so to speak, laying there asleep and motionless. But then the law comes along, and the law is like a cattle prod that provokes and pokes the bear and stirs it into action. In Romans 7, verse 8, this is the picture when it says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. Apart from that cattle prod... The bear remains asleep, but, 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 but bring authority in, bring the law into the picture, bring in a command from an authority figure that regulates behavior somehow, and it's like poking that bear. All of a sudden, sin springs to life and rears up on its hind legs. Gone is the sleep, and the, and the bear is angry now and eager to pounce and claw somebody to death. 
That illustration, I know, falls short, but maybe it helps a little bit. Sin is like that bear, goaded to life by the prodding and poking and provoking of the law. Any law, really, any restriction, any imposed limit placed on human behavior can provoke that sin that is within. And I thought just as an example, think about those speed limit signs that we see along the highway that have numbers on them. (laughs) Governing how fast you can legally drive on the highway and how many drivers see those signs and say to themselves, nobody's going to tell me how fast I can drive. I got 300 horses under the hood here and they're raring to go. I'm going to drive whatever speed I want. That's the law poking the bear. Think about God's law now. Think about those Ten Commandments. I remember talking to a guy once and I said, I was you know, trying to help him see how we're all sinners, how we're all transgressors. And I, think, I said, just think about the Ten Commandments for, for a few minutes. Uh, how many of those have you broken? And, and, and he said, I don't think I've broken any of them. And I said, well, well what are the Ten Commandments? And he didn't know any of them. No. <laughs> so often true, right? But think about that moral law that was given to Moses that was binding on all of God's people, all of those thou shalts and thou shalt nots. People back then and people now just kind of bristle at this notion that there's a divine being who thinks he has the right to govern our lives. Commands just provoke people. A little later on in Romans chapter 7, Paul himself is going to affirm this. He's going to write this. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, Thou shalt not covet. Which commandment is that? Ten, right? But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, the provoking of the law, produced in me all kinds of coveting. Law provokes and stirs up sin, is what he was saying. Now, I think this raises some questions, and and, and down through the centuries, Bible scholars have labored to define what God's purpose was in giving his moral law to his people. And I happen to agree with those who believe that God gave his law for at least four purposes, four uses of the law. I'd like to just survey those for a moment. First, the law functions as a curb, a curb in society. For society at large, the law was meant to function as a boundary or a curb. It was meant to restrain sin in a society, in a culture, to curb antisocial behavior that's detrimental to the common good. It was given first to God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, but of course down through the centuries, other nations have adopted elements of God's law to one degree or another to define what's right and wrong in society, to restrain evil behavior. And so God's law was meant to function on the societal level like a curb or a boundary. But for individuals, God's law, I believe, was meant to function like a mirror, a mirror, God's law shows humanity what? How we look to Him. How sinful 
we are when we look at ourselves in light of the law of God, in light of what God requires. We gaze into the mirror of God's law, and it reflects back to us our true condition before the Lord, showing us to be what? Lawbreakers, right? All of humanity, transgressors, sinners, for all have sinned, the Bible says. So, so the law functions like a curb, but also like a mirror. But then third, as I mentioned, the law not only shows, but the law also provokes. That's the third use of the law. It's a prod. As I said, the law functions like a, 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 a poker or a cattle prod. God designed it that way. Why? So that people would see their sin even more clearly. Or as it says, so that sin would become exceedingly sinful. When God's law was performing that function in Paul, he saw his own envy, his own coveting, even more clearly. It became more obvious to him. And so this function of the law of God was intended to drive every one of us to see our sin more clearly and then to run to a Savior. It was intended to drive us to look for someone who could be our rescuer, our hero, our champion, who would ultimately slay that bear that is inside of us that we could not overpower ourselves in our own strength. So in that sense, as Galatians 3.24 says, the law was meant to point us to Jesus. That's a function of the law. And then, fourth, for the Christian, the believer... The law continues to have importance for us today by presenting to us a portrait. The law was meant to function for us as a portrait, a picture of the righteous life. What does a godly, righteous, God-pleasing life look like? Well, we see it in the law. Now, we do hear a lot in the book of Romans about how the Christian's relationship to the law has changed through Christ, but I'm in agreement with those who contend that this function has not changed. God's holy law still pictures and portrays for us what a righteous, godly life looks like. And I would want to remind all of us that Jesus summed up the law in two commandments, didn't he? He was challenged on that on one occasion. And he basically said all of the law and all the prophets can be summed up in two commands, which were love God with everything you've got, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang, he said, on those two commandments. If you love God with all your heart, you're not going to put any other gods before him. You're not going to take his name in vain, those sorts of things. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to covet what they have. You're not going to commit adultery with them. You're not going to lie to them. You're not... See what I'm saying? It, it's all summed up in those two, Jesus said. Obeying God's law means loving God supremely and loving people, other people, like we love ourselves. Now, here's what's important to realize. The law does not provide any power or desire to keep it. The law doesn't give us any ability, any enabling to actually do the things that it demands, to live that way. That's got to come from somewhere else. And so just to keep this straight in my own mind, I, I crafted this little statement about the law that clarifies it for me. 
And here it is. The law of God is necessary and good, but it is ineffective and powerless. It is necessary. It is good. We're going to see that again and again in Romans chapter 7. But it is powerless. It provides no enabling to keep its demands. The good law of God is effective for what it was designed for, but it can't supply the desire to live out everything that it requires of us. That's got to come from another source, which we're going to talk about in a bit. All right. All of that was background, context, B-roll. Now for today's sermon. <laughs> Here's our text for today. Romans, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 7. Just the first six verses. Let me read them. Listen as I read. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, there's that prod, that provoking, we're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, verse 6, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is interesting, isn't it? A lot here. This chapter is about struggle, but the, the struggle part is coming next week. Here, Paul's laying some groundwork for that whole discussion. And he's still dealing from back in Romans chapter 6 with this idea that if we tell Christian people that they're not under the law any longer, that they're now under grace, if we tell people that, then, then they're just going to go out and sin, 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 and sin up a storm because after all, hey, I'm under grace, I'm not under law, and God's amazing grace is going to cover me. For everything that I, I get involved with, everything that I do, they're just going to ignore God's command to love Him and to love people, and they're going to go out and just be selfish and indulge their flesh. And they'll feel okay about it because of God's amazing grace. And Paul is answering that contention, and he's basically saying this, no way. <laughs> no way. No, true believers, people who've actually received the true grace of God, will not do that. Not if they've truly grasped His grace. And in chapter 6, he made the case, true believers cannot continue in a lifestyle of deliberate sin for two reasons, because they have God's life in them now, and because they have a new Lord, a new Master. 
There's something inside of every Christian now that yearns to love God and to love people. And we've been set free from sin's mastery, from sin's dominance, to serve a new master. And so now as as we enter into chapter 7, the question that Paul is focusing on here is this. How do we, as Christian people who've received the grace of God, how do we cooperate with God's sanctifying work in us? What's our part? What should we be focusing on? Should we be focusing on trying to keep God's law? Or should we be focusing on something else? Or asked another way, is our part to focus on law keeping or on spirit leading? Is our sanctification, our our lifestyle of freedom from sin in our daily lives, is that going to come about through trying harder to keep the rules or through moment by moment relying on the Holy Spirit to lead us? That's an important question. And Paul has a clear answer for us here. He wants to show us that our frustration and struggle is only going to increase if we take the wrong approach here, if we choose the wrong path for our spiritual growth. And These six verses could be outlined like this. First, there's an axiom that he presents, a universal rule of life. Then there's a common illustration from daily life. And then there are the spiritual applications and challenges. So let me unpack this a little bit. First, in verse 1, Paul presents this universal axiom of life. And it's this. Law is only binding on the living, not the dead. You think about that and you go, well, duh. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, of course. That's kind of self-evident, right? Laws don't apply to dead people. You cannot be brought to trial for breaking a law if you're in the morgue. Laws only apply to the living. It's kind of obvious. Paul states it, though, and we should know, Paul, he's heading somewhere with this. And then he presents this illustration. And it's the illustration of marriage. Spouses being married and then one of them dying and then the surviving spouse being released from that law of marriage and they're free then to remarry. They're not bound to their first husband because their first husband has died. So it breaks the marriage bond when a spouse dies. That's this illustration he gives. He says, interestingly, there's a law of marriage that binds a man and a woman together in a holy covenant for a lifetime until one of them dies. Once death occurs, this law is no longer binding. Now, marriage is not Paul's main point in these six verses, is it? It's an illustration. But it presents a pastor with an opportunity to talk for a few moments about marriage. And so kind of as a sidebar, I want to say a few things about marriage, okay? And then we'll come back. Because Paul does talk about it here. And the first thing I'd like to say is that marriage was God's idea, not man's idea. You believe that? Who invented marriage? Well, yeah, our creator did. Find it back in early parts of Genesis, right? So since the creator invented marriage, then the creator gets to define marriage. And in the Bible, God defines marriage 
as a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. And Paul reiterates and reinforces that here. And this is, has been long accepted all over the world for millennia, right? But our current culture now is repelled and repulsed by this notion. Remember what we said about how God's law provokes sin and pokes the bear? Here's an example. People hear that God's design for marriage is one man and one woman for a lifetime, and they rise up and declare, no, no, we get to define marriage. We get to define it as whatever we want it to be. That's the prevailing attitude and belief now in our culture, is it not? Now, I get it. In a pluralistic society with multiple belief systems and multiple worldviews represented, to live together in peace, I understand that we must make room for differing kinds of relationships. But even so, I'm one who would contend that if it's not one man and one woman covenanting together for life, then it shouldn't be called marriage. Call it something else. Call it civil union. Whatever. But humanity doesn't get to tinker with the definition of something that humanity didn't originate. We don't get to tamper with it. We don't get to mess with it. We don't get to redefine what our Creator has already defined. Marriage was God's idea, and there is a law of marriage that defines it. Second, in this passage here, what Paul gives us is the general rule of marriage, not the exceptions. This passage here, it's just a couple of verses, right? doesn't expand on the other valid scriptural reasons by which a marriage bond is dissolved. Paul just gives the general rule here, not the exceptions. There are other places in the Bible, other passages, where he and the Lord Jesus himself mention two exceptions to this general law of marriage, marriage two instances by which the marriage bond can be dissolved through divorce. Namely, if you've been a victim of your spouse's unfaithfulness, or if your spouse wants a divorce because you became a Christian and they hate Christ. Divorce isn't mandated in those situations, but it is allowed and recognized by God. Check out Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. But again, that's not the ideal, is it? It happens, but sin always has a part to play in this. And that's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. I can't get deep into it right now. Third thing I want to say about this is the institution of marriage is a good thing. God said so in Genesis, right? Adam and Eve, it's very good. And we know that enduring cultures are built on healthy families and strong marriages. But I would, you know, my observation is this. In our day, sadly, marriage seems to have fallen into some disfavor in our culture, hasn't it? Maybe, you know, I mean, I get it. So many heartbreaking divorces have taken place that perhaps that's just turned people off to this idea. The trend now is to not get married. Just have relations with whoever you want, maybe live together and act like a married couple without making that covenant. I mean, isn't it true that the stigma that used to be attached in our culture to cohabiting is gone? Even in the Christian world, it's 
it's gone or nearly gone, you're actually viewed as kind of weird if you don't live together before you get married, if you ever get married. Again, I think it's that poking the bear thing. Don't tell me that I can't have sexual relations with whoever I want. It's none of your business. I'll do whatever I want with whoever I want, however I want. But I would contend that the demise of marriage is tearing at the very fabric of our culture. And it's going to have consequences. It already has. It is, as we speak. For now, as a pastor talking to people that he loves, I just want to encourage single people here to consider the value of getting married someday for several reasons. Because of what it pictures, what it represents, God's covenant relationship with his people, and of course, along with that, the value of bringing children into the world in two parent families with a dad and a mom, which is always shown to be the best and healthiest environment for children to be raised in. I say stuff like this and I think, you know, Steve, you're probably going to get thrown in jail someday for saying this stuff, but you'd come and visit me, wouldn't you? Come and say nice things to me and encourage me. And then fourth, marriages need attention in order to keep flourishing. (laughs) I thought it was funny that Vonda was up here earlier talking about marriage being like a car, changing oil and spark plugs and such. And I'm going to say marriage is like a a plant. (laughs) I'm thinking maybe we should have got together and... Anyway, marriage is like a plant. Plants need attention right? I had a plant once, I ignored it, and it died. Plants need attention, they need care, they need sunlight, they need weed pulling, they need fertilizing, they need all of those things if they're going to thrive and flourish. And if you are a married person today and you sense that your marriage is wilting, could it be that you are not giving it enough attention? You're not tending to it. It's a plant, it's a living thing. It will not thrive on its own without attention. And I think weed pulling, weed pulling is especially important in a marriage, don't you think? Yanking out those things that threaten to choke the life out of your marriage. I think all marriage, you know, listen, all marriages struggle. All marriages struggle. But all marriages, I believe, could benefit from help in this area. And I'm very grateful for the marriage enrichment ministry that we have here in this church. I think it's been a blessing to a lot of people. Marriage counseling, uh, pre-marriage classes, our Marriage Matters ministry that was alluded to earlier, every month dealing with a topic that affects marriages and hearing from other married couples and, and, and their lives and the things that they're learning. The date night that's coming up this week. I'll be there. I mean, if you're married, why not avail yourself of some of these things that, that your church offers just to try to Help strengthen your marriage and keep, keep it in front of you. But I digress. Back to Romans 7, because that was just a sidebar. Paul uses the general law of marriage as an illustration here. Basically says, look, if you're married and then your spouse dies, you're free to remarry. You become dead to the law that bound you to your first spouse. You're free, free to meet somebody else, free to marry somebody else without sinning. But all that marriage talk is meant to be an illustration of a spiritual truth. That's 
where he's going here. So the third point, the spiritual application here is that believers united with Christ have died to the law. And that opens up an entirely new path to their sanctification, fruitful marriage to Jesus and the new way of the Spirit. Let me read this last section again. With that, again, as the backdrop. Verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. You were bound to it in a marriage of sorts, but you've died to it through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. A new husband, a new spouse, to him who has been raised from the dead. In order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve. Listen now, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. There's deep stuff here. Four spiritual truths he's wanting us to to see, to understand, to grasp, to take to heart. First, believers have died to the law and are released from the law. That's what he says. Freeing them to remarry, in a sense, and be bound to a new husband, Christ, and through our union with Christ, produce fruit for God. That is a month-long sermon series right there. Second, in our pre-Christ days, our B.C. days, remember those days? When we were bound to the law, it, the law, had the effect of stirring up sinful desires which yielded bad fruit. Or said another way, when you poke the bear, bad things happen. And he's already talked about the bad fruit of the old life, things that we all did before Christ, that we're now ashamed of. He's talked about that, and here he highlights the role of the law in stirring up those fleshly desires that produce that bad fruit. Third, the one who freed us from the law then bound us to himself so that we now serve a new master, we submit to a new husband, but now with a new power source, an indwelling spirit. Fourth, being freed from the law was never meant to increase sinning. Hey, we're free from the law now. We're under grace. We can go out and sin up a storm. That's not what it was meant for. Being freed from the law by Jesus was meant to increase love because that's a fruit of the Spirit-filled life, the Spirit-controlled life. That's the new way of the Spirit. So listen, listen carefully, please. Here it is, condensed, okay? Just as we could never be justified before God by the law, neither can we now, having been justified, become sanctified by our own law-keeping efforts. It won't happen. You can try it. I have. You can try the rule-keeping approach to your spiritual growth if you want. Here's what Paul had to say about this in a parallel passage in Galatians chapter 3 
to some believers who were trying that path, right? Trying to grow spiritually by just focusing on keeping the rules. He said this, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Basically saying, fat chance of that happening. I can guarantee you this, that if you take the rule-keeping approach to Christian living, it is only going to lead to lots of frustration in your life. Now, there's some frustration that's just inherent in the Christian walk due to the fact that that sin is still present and the flesh is still attached to us. But you can add a whole new dimension of struggle and frustration to your life if you want to by trying to live the Christian life in your own strength. Ignoring the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit who lives within you. I'm telling you, Focusing on just keeping all the rules, all the do's and don'ts will not lead you to that abundant life that Jesus came to offer. It won't. That's performance-based Christian living. It's not the real thing. It's a cheap substitute. Like when you have your taste buds set on A&W root beer and they're out, there's none on the shelf, and you settle for Big K Cola. It's like, not what I had in mind, right? It's, a, it's the off-brand. It's not the real thing, not what Jesus intended. Paul himself found that out in his experience. Listen, the law could not justify us before God, and it doesn't have the power by itself to sanctify us before God. We need the Holy Spirit's power for that. Through the years, people have asked me, Pastor Steve, what's the key? Like, give me one key. What's the one key, Steve, for living a victorious, dynamic, joy-filled, effective Christian life? I don't know that there is just one single key to that kind of life. In, in 20 different conversations, I might give 20 different answers. But for you, today, I'm going to say what it says here. You want one thing to focus on? There's an old way and there's a new way. Take the new way. The new way of the Spirit. That's what Paul calls it. The old way, it says right here, it's the way of the written code, right? That's the way of religious rule keeping, of getting up every day focused on your list, your list of do's and don'ts. In my experience, taking that approach to my sanctification, my spiritual growth, just leads to pride. It leads to, to, you know, puffing my chest out and feeling superior to other people who don't have it going on quite to the level that I do. It leads to being critical and judgmental of other people who aren't keeping the rules to my standards. It leads to a lack of love that bears very little resemblance to the Jesus that I claim to follow. The holiness that that approach produces is paper-thin, surface-level, most often leads to posing and pretending and polishing your image to make sure that you're looking good in the eyes of the people that you want to hold you in high regard. That's been my experience of what that approach, the performance-based Christian life, leads to. 
There is another approach. There's another focus that we can take in our walk with Christ. And right here, Paul calls it the new way of the Spirit. I just like how that sounds, don't you? The new way of the Spirit. Now, don't misunderstand this. Don't take this too far. It's not that the Word of God is not important. Avoid that mistake in thinking. The Word of God is critically important. Hugely vital for our sanctification because it was written by the Spirit. The Spirit of God wrote the Word of God. And He uses His Word to sanctify us. But listen, it's different now because in yielding control of our lives to the Holy Spirit... There's a power now available to live out the Word. Instead of condemning us, the Word becomes animated by the Spirit of God who enlivens it and quickens it and animates it and fleshes it out in our lives. So how could this look? I mean, getting real practical, how could this living in this new way of the Spirit look? Well, it could look like this. You get up in the morning... You get your cup of coffee, because that's part of the new way of the Spirit, right? (laughs) You spend time in God's Word. That's what I do in the morning. Spend time in God's Word, listening to it, reading it. And then you say, okay now, Holy Spirit, I want you to take over today. I've been driving my life, but I'm going to get out and go sit in the back seat. You take the wheel of my life. You're in control. I'm yielding to you, Holy Spirit. Live the word of God that you wrote. Live that out through me today. Live Jesus' life out through my life today, Holy Spirit. I repent of my self-will, my selfish ambition, my self-sovereignty. I want to be emptied now of me and filled up by you. You know, the Bible says be filled by the Spirit. Emptied of self, filled up by the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, magnify Jesus through my life today. May Jesus look big through me today. I declare that Jesus has freed me from sin. We need to declare things in our morning prayer. We need to proclaim things that are true. We need to hear ourselves say it in our own, in our own, um, our own what? Our own voice, yeah. You're my source. You're my power for living this life Jesus gave me. I want to walk every step today in dependence upon you, Holy Spirit, because your word says walk in the Spirit every step. And as I do, produce your fruit in me today, the fruit of the Spirit. Produce your love in me, your love for people of all kinds. Your love for my wife, my spouse, your love for my children, your love for my co-workers. Produce that in me, because it's not in me naturally. I need your love flowing out through me to my co-workers and fellow students at school on the campus. Put your love in me for, for your people and for lost people. Produce your love, your joy, your peace, your patient endurance in me today. Produce all of your fruit. Give me ears to hear your voice today, Holy Spirit. Guide my every step, my every conversation, my every interaction today. I'm yours. I belong to you. Use me now to extend the rule and reign of Jesus wherever I set my feet today. In Jesus' name, amen. Here we go. Out into the day now. Walking in constant 
moment-by-moment reliance and dependence upon the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. That's the way of the Spirit, the new way. That's the only chance any of us will have to have His love, His joy, His peace, His patience coming out through our lives. I know for me, my life shows better fruit when I take that approach. And I believe yours will too. There's a lot more to learn about this. Next week, I'm sure, when uh, Alan comes and talks about that season in Paul's life where he lived the other way and experienced the frustration and struggle of that. We're all going to identify with that. But, but even in exploring that, I hope we remember there's a better way. There's a better way, the new way of the Spirit. Paul found it, and you can too. So I'll close with one last verse from that companion passage over in the letter to the Galatians. It really sums it up very well. Galatians 5.13. Listen. For you were called to freedom, brothers. That's freedom from the law and freedom from sin. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's the new way of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this. Again, would we even have a clue, would we even know this if we didn't have Romans in our Bibles? So thank you, thank you, thank you that we have been released from the demands of the law which gave us no power, no no desire, no impetus to keep it. We thank you for the new way of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in all of us to teach us what that new way looks like for for each and every one of us sitting in this room today. Would Would you help us to release the controls of our lives to you? Let you drive. As we yield control, Spirit of God, produce that fruit in us that we all want. I mean, we all want more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more gentleness, more kindness, more self-control. We all want those things. And really, that's a portrait of Jesus, our Savior. And so what I'm really asking, Holy Spirit, is that you would produce the life of Jesus in and through us as we walk in dependence upon you each day. Take us down this path of the new way of the Spirit, Lord. Path of love. Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving others like we love ourselves. Fulfill that law in us, Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.